On the 1st of January 2021, European natural gas prices sat at a sedate €23 Euros per megawatt hour. By June, the price had passed €30. Euros. By October, it was €110. Euros. And then finally, just before Christmas, the Dutch TTF benchmark recorded a spike of over €200 Euros per megawatt hour. A unique set of circumstances had thrown energy markets into turmoil, the effects of which, some analysts say, will be felt for years to come. Global supply of fossil fuels could not keep up with demand as economies recovered from COVID-19. Added to this, the worst Chinese energy crisis for decades, power outages across India, drought in Brazil and environmental disasters in North America all put strain on the global energy web. Added to this, a cold winter in Europe meant that gas storage levels were at legal minimums. One of the least windy years in the UK for 60 years saw turbines standing idle, and officials of a country formerly described as the Saudi Arabia of wind turning to the remaining coal power stations to keep the lights on. Reliance on fossil fuel imports and a lack of domestic energy supply brought many developed nations to the brink and saw record amounts of coal being burned to balance global grids. Promises made to cut carbon emissions and reach net zero are one thing, but creating a really resilient energy system is another. One that can generate enough power to match demand, as well as hit tough decarbonisation targets. And a high penetration of renewables in energy generation is only one half of the solution. The ongoing energy crisis is complicated, but what if there are a way to generate firm power? to roll it out quickly, and to do it without increasing carbon emissions. A robust green grid is the best defence against future crises. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we've partnered with SNC-Lavalin to talk about a sector that has been undergoing something of a revolution. One that looks to bring modern methods of construction, modularity and factory construction, to standardise its processes, bring reliability to construction schedules and lower costs. We have spoken about modern methods of construction before when it comes to housing, and you can see episode 64, Ederoth, for a discussion on that topic. But this time, we're looking at the application of something much, much more complicated. We are looking at nuclear power and the approaching revolution of the small modular reactor. But first, we need to understand what exactly fission power is and what the latest reactor designs involve. All current nuclear power relies on a process called fission to create energy. The reactor fires a neuron at a large, unstable particle, such as uranium. The collision splits the atom in two, releasing two lighter elements and some more neutrons. However, the resulting particles weigh slightly less than the original particle. This unaccounted for mass is converted into heat energy, and we get a lot of energy 
over very little mass, thanks to E equals mc squared. This is then used to heat water, creating steam and turning a generator turbine. So like most power plants, it creates electricity through steam, but there's no burning of fossil fuels and no carbon released into the atmosphere. However, historically for grid generation, we've built enormous, bespoke nuclear plants. With the small modular reactor, there are advantages of reduced cost and a more consistent supply chain. There's been a resurgence within the, uh, within the industry, within society, I believe, in terms of SMRs at the moment. And I think what's driven it is the, the realisation on the world that we need to do something, we need to act quickly. This is James Goodenough, new nuclear technologies lead for Atkins. With the, the UK's commitment to, uh, to being carbon net zero by 2050, it's really focused the mind of, of, of everyone that this is a serious problem. And when we talk about small modular reactors, I think the, the advantage that small modular reactors have is over sort of their large scale counterparts is that they provide lower construction risk because the whole concept about a small modular reactor is that they're factory built. So you don't have the major construction uh, project that we see down at Hinkley, for example. It's all modularised, built in factories, shipped to site. So it's much more of a commodity, sort of a production line type approach is the, is the concept behind them. The two major nuclear projects in the UK at the moment are the under construction Hinkley Point C and the proposed Sizewell C each costing over £20 billion and each with a capacity of 3.2 gigawatts, which represents a little under 10% of 2014 electricity demand in the UK. The design of Sizewell can be such that it benefits from the experience on Hinkley, but the SMR concept advocates going beyond this. If you're continually trying to reinvent the wheel, then obviously the cost is going to remain high. But when you're talking about SMRs, for, for, for it to really gain the benefit, you're talking about a fleet, a fleet of these. So as we said, you're churning them out of the factory. This could mean a dozen or even more, bringing the cost down as volume manufacturing benefits increase. Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, I do think there are some, some misconceptions about the nature of small modular reactors because they all get sort of grouped together so often. This is Julianne Dendecker. She's Vice President of Project Delivery for SNC-Lavalin's Canadian Nuclear Division. Small modular reactors really encompasses everything from what we would call the micro-reactors. So some of these are as small as a shipping container. They're designed for a remote application. Some of them are as small as one megawatt even, all the way up to what we would call grid-scale applications. So as a, for example, the Rolls-Royce reactor is, is over 400 megawatts. So that's you know, that's the size of a natural gas station. And a footprint of around two football pitches is a good approximation of the footprint of such a site. We will also hear more about the Rolls-Royce Consortium later. So they are very much an actual industrial facility and they're an installation. But what the, at least the, the promise of them, is to try to maximise the number of components that you can fabricate in, in modules, uh, as the name suggests. And, and of course, the oil and gas industry has done this with offshore oil rigs and things like that. But then also to standardize the design and give you that repeatability. 
A final thing to understand about nuclear power is the concept of reactor generations. Modern reactors are described as third generation, or Gen 3. The first of these began operation in the mid to late 1990s. Gen 2 reactors comprise the majority of reactors of the nuclear age, and Gen 1 were the prototype reactors built in the 1950s and 60s. Each generation was made safer and more efficient, with Gen 3 reactors bringing in standardisation of design and passive safety features, which forced the reactor to default to a safe shutdown state in the absence of any human control. The generations were defined as Gen 4 reactors entered the discussion. These are a little different and are sometimes called advanced reactors or advanced modular reactors, AMRs, if modular construction is involved. Most of those are either, you know, they're, they're high temperature, they rely on some, some sort of inherent physical properties that allow them to shut down safely without a lot of human intervention. So those are the molten salts and, and some of the high temperature gas reactors and things like that. A lot of these Gen 4 designs are based on experimental reactors and new plans. But there has not yet been wide-scale deployment, and probably will not be seen before the 2030s. However, they have some interesting features that have never been seen before. A lot of those do bring a lot of promise in terms of closing the fuel cycle, meaning they would be able to burn recycled fuels, and in some cases their own fuel, to try to minimize the amount of spent fuel that, that you have to deal with, and in some cases being able to disposition the spent fuel that we already have today. Reusing spent nuclear fuel from older reactors that's previously been classed as waste. So, for example, in Canada, there's a company called Moltex that's developing a molten salt reactor. that is going to be specifically designed to recycle the spent can-do fuel that's currently stored in Canada. And what, what they have done is taken a look at, okay, recycling fuel, traditional recycling of fuel like what's done in France, you have to separate the plutonium that's generated as you, as you burn up your uranium and be able to extract that from the spent fuel which is a relatively expensive process so that you can put it back in and use it for you know, useful purpose in, into a new reactor. The molten salt types would allow you to actually not have to separate that plutonium and would allow you to just burn it along with all the other actinides and sort of radioactive waste products and sort of just burn it all at once. So it's, it's proposing to be a much cheaper way to deal with and recycle your spent fuel and then still get you know, carbon-free electricity out, out the back end of that plant. Back in the UK, James says that the government has adopted a three-pronged approach to nuclear. Large-scale nuclear, such as Hinkley and Sizewell, SMRs and AMR studies. Although future technology is fun to think about, but we need to be working on solutions now. This is my personal opinion of we're always looking for improvement in technology and we're continuing to advance and therefore we don't ever, and it do, you know, we're always looking to the next thing. And I think that's really the claims of the Gen 3 at the moment, the SMRs, which is actually if we really want something to be part of the the energy mix that is going to help us decarbonize this world. We need to be 
promoting, pushing and designing with existing known technology. So yes, there may be some better technologies out there, but the readiness level for them is what impact are they going to have? Because there's, there's much more inherent risk in understanding whether the technology is going to work, when it's going to be ready, when, when is it actually going to, going to be on the, on the mix. Which leaves us with SMRs as a modern vision for nuclear to supplement the large-scale reactors. And the most promising project in the UK at the moment is led by Rolls-Royce. Let's sort of go back to about 2015, something like that, when Rolls-Royce were looking to, to enter into the market. Rolls-Royce obviously got a rich history in, in, in small reactors, having been designing the, the reactors for our submarine fleet, for nuclear propulsion for um, a, a number of years, so a rich history in that. Rolls-Royce were looking for a way to see how they could potentially sell their reactor design for grid generation purposes, but realised it's very unlikely that anyone will be designing a plant with a gap in it for a reactor. So then quickly decided, actually, this is something we're going to have to, we're going to have to design a plant. They, they, they then set about getting interest within the industry and getting backing from the government. And then, in 2019, they were granted funding of £18 million by UK Research and Innovation to develop the idea. So they formed a consortium of the main UK nuclear players within that area. So Atkins were one of those, and then others such as, as Assistem, Jacobs, the National Nuclear Labs. They had big constructors in there in terms of Lang O'Rourke and, and Baum Nuttall, um, the Advanced Manufacturing Facility the Welding Institute. So coming together to form a consortium to, to, to work together to design the initial pre-concept definition of what this, this, this plant might, might be like. The first phase lasted a year and a half to prove the concept and attract external investments. Phase two began recently in November 2021, and that is Rolls-Royce SMR as a business entity. And the the current goal is that we will have an operating plant on the grid in the early 2030s, clearly providing that we, we get an order in the next in the next 12 months, something like that. But um, but yeah, no, that's that, that that's the plan. And then first of a, we, we don't even say first of a kind. We we talk about first of a fleet because that's the whole concept that we talked about previously. The 470 megawatt capacity is larger than the 300 megawatt upper limit for what would typically be considered a small reactor. But the decision was made to go for the largest reactor, 60 metres high, 4 metres in diameter, that could be transported either by truck, train or barge. In fact, all of the modules can be transported in this way. And from the start of fabrication of the modules, it could take as little as five years before the generation of the first electricity although each plant would have an on-site construction time of 500 days, with an operational life of 60 years. This is a Gen 3 reactor that could be rolled out more rapidly than other nuclear plants, at a target cost of 1.8 billion per unit once five have been built. But there are obstacles to nuclear. Finance is often a huge one. And the RAB model, whereby costs of a future project are spread out among bill payers over many years, can even begin before construction. This has already been used on major infrastructure such as the Thames Tideway sewer tunnel and takes a lot of the risk off developers, making nuclear a more comfortable development. 
However, for the lower cost SMRs, the RAB model is not necessary, so financing isn't an obstacle. Another factor is the public perception of nuclear safety, and a way that safety can be measured in energy production is fatality rates per terawatt hour. For brown coal and coal, this is 32.7 and 24.6 deaths respectively. For oil, it's 18.4, for biomass, 4.6, and for gas, 2.8. For nuclear, it is 0.07. This puts nuclear in the same order of magnitude as the renewables, wind, hydropower, and solar, which are 0.04, 0.02, and 0.02, respectively. The website ourworldindata.org illustrated this wonderfully with an imaginary town of 187,000 people in Europe. This is the amount of people needed to consume one terawatt hour of energy. If it were fueled entirely by coal, some 25 people would have to die prematurely per year. If it were nuclear, it would take 14 years before a single person would die. Things are still improving, and not just due to advancing technology. Both the Gen 3s are, are safer, but also the concept of regulation has, has really permeated across the world. And, and some of that was an outfall of, of, of Chernobyl and, and incidents like that in terms of the, the mandates and the requirements to actually have accident scenarios all you know, written down, postulated out into a very, very, very high level of detail so that the regulators can see. And we also have, you know, as, as we see climate change kind of taking its toll around the world, we continue to see increased requirements for the types of accidents that we have to postulate and how many different concurrent events. So you mean take Fukushima, for example, there's now a whole industry that is doing what so-called Fukushima upgrades in terms of being able to handle multiple concurrent events where you have to imagine that there's an earthquake at the same time as losing offsite power and any ability to call in emergency services and all of those things happening concurrently and, and making sure that nuclear stations are designed to withstand them. The other major issue raised in discussion about nuclear is the waste. Although spent nuclear fuel and other nuclear waste is not accumulated in great volumes, it can remain toxic for thousands of years. The Rolls-Royce SMR is capable of storing all of its material on site, and final disposal options are reuse as fuel in Gen 4 reactors, reprocessing at Sellafield, or being interred in a deep geological disposal facility. The most advanced of these is the Onkolo project developed in Finland by Posiva, although the UK government is currently working to identify a domestic site. That's sort of the, the industry sort of gold standard of how you, how you would deal with spent nuclear fuel and where you would store it, how you would store it. The question of the recycling of waste, I think that is something that, that does need to be sorted out because what you don't want to do is bury all the waste products that you kind of figure out later, hey, that, that could have actually been useful input material for this other kind of reactor. However, it doesn't completely eliminate the need for that deep geological repository because every reactor type is going to have some level of, of waste product that it can't possibly recycle. There, there are going to be waste types that do have to be stored and put in containers and encapsulated in concrete and, and you know, stored in these deep geological repositories. It's really more of a question of what are those volumes? And this is where the recycling reactors can probably 
help you minimize the volume that you have to store. And then of course, you know, it's, it's making sure that you have a plan for, for how you're going to do all of that. The Rolls-Royce plant would produce one Olympic-sized swimming pool of material in its own 60-year lifetime. So it's, it's, it's manageable, it's manageable. And one of the um, sort of facts that I really, I really like is that if you live to the age of 80 and all of your electricity demand came from an SMR, the waste that you would personally have generated through that 80-year life would fit into the size of a Coke can. But when we talk about waste and nuclear and stuff, and I, I don't know what image it conjures up in, in, in the general public's mind, they think of, I don't know, the Simpsons with nuclear waste or, 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 or littered around. And, and actually, we, we, we're, we're talking about something. We know the waste. We know that we generate waste. All industries generate waste. But we, we know how much we're going to generate and we know what we're going to do with it, how we're going to store it safely. And I just think that's, that, that, that's important for us to, to grasp. Advocating for itself is not something that the nuclear industry has always been best at, but the public perception has been changing. Well, I think that the nuclear sector has, has always, as opposed to sort of trying to prominently be the front, you know, out, out in front saying, hey, come and take a look at our industry and what we're doing to make sure things are safe. Our general MO is to kind of quietly stay in the background producing safe electricity and, and while nobody talks about it and things like that. I think what's, what I see going on in the public space is that a lot of activists and, and in some cases, people who were previously sort of anti-nuclear are becoming more educated about, as I say, kind of the, the other full life cycle impacts on the environment from other electricity generation types and saying, oh my gosh, when I stack all of these things up, I mean, nuclear, the, the facts are, are certainly in, in our favor in terms of it being the lowest overall carbon footprint and environmental impact from a total environmental cost per, per megawatt output. And so I think it's, we're, we're actually seeing a lot of non-industry players doing a much better job being, being out in you know, in the general public saying, hey, why aren't we taking a look at this? Like, who, wh wh what's going on? Where is the logic here? And, and now you're, st you know, even in Germany. Which is closing nuclear plants, despite rising energy costs and high CO2 emissions. You're starting to see a bit more of a mixed dialogue where it used to be kind of a singular voice uh, across all the newspapers and everything saying, you know, no, everybody's anti-nuclear. And now you see a lot more people questioning that and saying, well, why are we the outliers here shutting down carbon-free nuclear power generation and firing up coal plants? Like, why are, why are we doing that? Um, so, so I think you're seeing a much more healthy debate uh, going on. But, you know, we also have, have some great public figures out there that, that are, are doing a good job of making sure the story is told properly. Industry is in a race against time with climate change, and it's essential to rapidly decarbonise energy with all of the tools available. 
But on the horizon, there is a technology that's expected to supplant fission, even the Gen 4 reactors, entirely. That's fusion, and you can find out more about it in episode 96, Britain Builds a Star, which we produced with help from the UK Atomic Energy Authority. We've linked to it in the show notes. Fusion is another nuclear technology that will be a watershed moment for humanity when it's developed. In terms of its safety, it does not involve a self-sustaining reaction or highly radioactive material, and its use of abundant hydrogen as its fuel source. I completely agree. I completely agree. It, it, it sends shivers down my spine just thinking about it. It's just, if we can really crack it, and it does feel like, I mean, you, you'll be well aware that there's been um, uh, the, the, the long standing joke in fusion is it's almost 30 years away, and it has been for the last uh, sort of 60, 70 years. But, um, but it feels like we're getting closer with some of the recent um, experiments that. Um, that have concluded at UKA in terms of their their, their mask projects and how they can, can get the heat out of the uh, the exhaust has 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 really kind of cemented that yeah we, we it really feels like we're we're getting somewhere now and um, it's it's a certainly a, an extremely exciting time. As the lead of Atkins' new nuclear technology business, James looks after small scale fission and also fusion. His team is delivering multiple projects in support of the UK Atomic Energy Authority's STEP programme, which we cover in detail in episode 96. His team also undertakes the architect-engineer role as part of a joint venture on the famous ITER project in southern France, which we intend to cover in a future episode of Engineering Matters. But here and now, we need to focus on known technologies that can decarbonise energy, and the only carbon-free source of energy that is classified as firm power and not affected by variable climate conditions, is nuclear fission. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young, and our own particle man is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, SNC Lavalin. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments around the world. 